This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome if you haven't tuned into this program before. If you have, thank you for joining us once again and I hope we all gain something positive from our time together. As our regulars will know, over the last few weeks we've been talking about the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to best benefit all living beings, the mind we call bodhicitta. In Sanskrit, bodhi means enlightenment and citta is mind, so bodhicitta means the mind of enlightenment. Although you can become an arhat without bodhicitta, to attain Buddhahood, bodhicitta is essential. Last week we spoke how when you decide to develop bodhicitta, you go through a ceremony to take the 18 main and 46 secondary vows of a bodhisattva. You take those vows not only for this life, but for all lives, until you reach Buddhahood. Now when we decide that we're going to follow this path, obviously there's some ways of behavior that we're going to have to give up and others that we will need to adopt. Basically we are saying that in all circumstances we're going to consider the welfare of others before ourselves. In fact, we're going to consider our own welfare only insofar as it enhances the welfare of others. This means that we avoid doing anything that will harm other beings of any kind. Certainly, one with a bodhisattva vows doesn't go around doing obviously harmful things like killing and stealing and so on. However, we also have to be careful of more subtle interpersonal relationships as well. And the section of Mayana Buddhism, known as mind training, is effective in helping us to avoid bad behavior and cultivate behavior consistent with the vows and commitments we have taken. We're now going to discuss one set of those mind training techniques called the seven-point mind training by a great Tibetan master by the name of Geshe Chikawa. But before we get into that, let's set our motivation for this program as we usually do. Regular listeners may perhaps be a bit bored with me talking again and again about the importance of motivation. However, I ask you to be, please bear with me as I explain once again for the benefit of those new to the program the importance of a correct motivation. Whatever we do, whether the result is positive or negative, is dependent on our motivation for the action. If we have a positive motivation, the outcome will be positive, even though the immediate result may not seem all that great. And similarly, if our motivation is bad, an immediate outcome may seem to be good, but the ultimate result will be bad. For instance, if we keep chickens for the pot, we might well look after them very well, and they may live ha- healthy and happy lives. Then when we kill and cook them, we, they may well provide us with a nice meal, so the outcome of all our actions may appear good. But no matter how well we treat them, the motivation to kill and eat them makes everything we do in relation to them unhealthy. Our motivation is not for the welfare of the chicken, but for ourselves. We have attachment for chicken flesh. Even though the immediate result may seem very satisfactory, the long-term result for us will be suffering. We could be born as a chicken that is killed and eaten for many lifetimes, or we could even be born in the hell realms to suffer intensely for a very long time. It's the strength of the motivation and subsequent actions that decide what we will experience. 
So, with that in mind, thinking about participating in this program, let's try to set the best motivation we can. And that is the bodhicitta motivation. Let's decide to participate in this program so that we can attain enlightenment to be of the best benefit we can to all living beings. This is the greatest motivation because the person who is best able to help others is a Buddha. Buddha has omniscient mind and unmatched qualities so can see exactly what is being what beings need at any particular time to make progress on the spiritual path. No other being has greater powers. So our intention is to make this program a cause to help us attain Buddhahood, not just for ourselves, but so we can help all other beings be free of suffering. So let's set, set such a motivation now. Thank you. Now to the mind training. Geshe-chakawa, the author of this text, lived in the 12th century from around 1101 to 1175. Geshe was not his name. Geshe is a title in the Gelukpa tradition given to someone who's completed extensive monastic training in Buddhism for about 20 years and has passed some pretty stringent exams. It's a bit like a doctor of divinity. Geshe Chikawa's name was actually Yeshi Dorje Chikawa, and as you might suspect, he was a great scholar and knew a lot about Buddhist philosophy and practice. One day in his teacher's room, he came across a text called Eight Verses of Mind Training and was, by, was fascinated by two lines that read, May I accept the defeat and offer the victory to others. He asked his teacher who wrote the text, and when he was told it was a master by the name of Langri Tangpa, he decided to go in search of this person and get some explanation from him. So off he set to Lhasa, where Langri Tangpa was supposed to be living. However, when Geshe Chikawa arrived in Lhasa, he found that Langri Tangpa had died, so he decided to search out one of his disciples to see if he, sh- to see if he could learn something from him. He learned that another Geshe, Geshe Sharawa, had been Langri Tampa's main disciple, and so he went looking for him. He found him giving a lengthy discourse over several days, so he sat in on the teachings. However, Geshe Sharawa didn't say anything about the eight verses of mind training. So one day, when Sharawa was circumambulating a stupa, Geshe Chakawa went up to him and asked if he could ask a question. I just gave an extensive teaching, snapped Geshe Sharawa. Didn't you follow it? But Chikawa persisted until Geshe Sharawa sat down and listened to his question. How important is the practice of offering the victory to others and accepting the defeat for oneself? If you want to become enlightened, said Geshe Sharawa, it is vital. Geshe Chikawa asked for proof that this was indeed a Buddhist teaching and was given several quotes, including one from Nagarjuna, which says, May their negative fruits ripen on me, and may my positive fruits upon them. So then Geshe Chekawa was convinced, and he stayed with Geshe Sharawa for 12 years, studying the mind training techniques, until he reached the path of insight through giving up self-cherishing. Up to then, the teachings had been in what is called the ear-whispered lineage. That is because they are so difficult to practice, they were only passed on orally to a few exceptional students by their teachers. But Geshe Chekawa thought that they were so important, 
he decided to write them down as a text so that they could become more widely known and practiced. And that is how the seven-point mind training came about. The seven points in this mind training are, first of all, preliminary practices, then training in the two bodhicittas, then thirdly, transforming adverse conditions into the path, then how to do a lifetime's practice on a daily basis, and fifthly, the criterion for success, and then sixth, commitments of mind training, and lastly, instructions, for, instructions of mind training. The preliminary practices of the first point refers to the tops, topics we covered early on in this series of programs. That is, precious human rebirth, impermanence and death, karma and the faults of cyclic existence. Very briefly, when we talk about the precious human rebirth, we mean a particular human rebirth with eight freedoms and ten endowments that make it easy to practice the Buddha's teachings. It is a rebirth that is free, if you like, of being in the hell realms, or the preta, animal, or god realms. In this rebirth, we are also free from holding wrong views, having mental or physical deformities, being born in a land where there are no Buddhist teachings, and being born in a time when the Buddha, Buddha hasn't come. Those are the eight freedoms. Then also in this rebirth, we have the ten endowments of being born human, in a land where the Buddhist teachings have taken root, we have no physical or mental disabilities, and we have faith in the teachings, and we've not committed any of the five heinous negativities. Also, the Buddha has come, he is taught, and the teachings remain, and they are still followed. We have also many supporters who will help us in our practices, and if we want to go on retreat and so on. With all those conditions met, we can in fact learn and practice just as we want. So that is why it's called a precious human rebirth. We went into this in some detail in one of the first programs in this series. Then the next preliminary is death and impermanence. And those who were with us may remember we talked about the nine-point death meditation in which we meditated on how death is in inevitable, it's ever coming closer, and up to now, we've done very little to prepare for it. Those three points led to the conclusion that we'd better do some practice to prepare for death. Then in the next three points, we considered how we have no idea when death will actually arrive. Also, that many agents of death surround us, and our bodies are not all that strong to withstand agents of death like serious disease, natural disasters, accidents and the like. From those three points came the conclusion that we'd better prepare for death from now on without wasting any more time. And then the last three points, that our body, friends and possessions will not help us at death time, only the practice we have done will, lead to the conclusion that we must not only practice now, but we must also do so purely and well. Under this heading, we also considered how everything is changing instant by instant, and nothing stays the same for even an instant, so familiarizing our minds with impermanence. When we considered karma, we noted the four characteristics of karma, that it is definite that good karma produces happiness and bad karma suffering, that karma multiplies, 
that actions not, do, not done don't bring a result, and that actions done never die but will always have a result. We also looked at how we create complete karmic actions and the results of some actions as well as the heaviness of actions and so on. Under the faults of cyclic existence, we went through the three types of suffering, suffering of suffering, the suffering of change, and the all-pervasive suffering, and then expanded those three into six and then into eight sufferings. We also considered the sufferings in the six realms of cyclic existence. So these were all the preliminaries. I'm sorry if you're new to the program and don't know what I'm talking about, but as I said, we've already covered these topics quite extensively and we can't spend too much time on them again. If you're interested in learning more about these preliminaries, please send me an email at tenzin underscore chozang at hotmail.com That's T-E-N-Z-I-N underscore C-H-O-S-A-N-G at hotmail.com and I'll get some explanation out to you. I'll even be able to get you MP3 CDs of our previous programs on these topics. The second of the seven points is training in the two bodhicittas. Actually, bodhicitta is one of those funny words that has many meanings. Usually the context will tell you which meaning makes sense. When we talk about the two bodhicittas here, we firstly mean the bodhicitta, known as conventional bodhicitta, that we've been talking about all along in previous weeks. That is the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Then the other bodhicitta is ultimate bodhicitta, which means the wisdom mind that understands the nature of reality experientially. In other words, the mind that understands emptiness. When talking about conventional bodhicitta, Kishichikawa's text, somewhat cryptically, goes like this. All blame lies on one. Meditate on the kindness of all. Practice alternately giving and taking. Commence the sequence by taking from your own side. Mount these two on the breath. The three objects, the three poisons and three root virtues are the brief instruction for subsequent attainment. To remember this, train in every activity by words. The instructions here will make some sense if you relate it to the method of developing bodhicitta called exchanging self for others. Do you remember the points we went through in that meditation? I hope you do because we spent quite some time on them. They are first equalizing self with others, in which we considered that all beings are exactly like ourselves, wanting happiness and not wanting suffering, so why should we only focus on one person's happiness? Then we considered the disadvantages of self-cherishing and the advantages of cherishing others. Following that, we developed the capacity for cherishing others by considering how the Buddha was once just like us, and through his applied enthusiasm and effort, became such a great being with no self-cherishing. If he could do it, then so can we. Realizing this, we then take on all the suffering of sentient beings and give them all our good fortune and positive potential. Once we are used to that kind of thinking, we couple it with a breath, breathing in all beings' sufferings like black smoke and breathing out our good fortune and positive potential as white light, which we give to others, bringing them happiness. 
So now, going back to Chikawa's text, the first line, all blame lies on one, indicates how self-cherishing is to blame for all our sufferings, while the next line, meditate on the great kindness of all, reminds us of the kindness of others and the advantages of cherishing them. This leads to the third and fourth lines. Practice alternately in giving and taking. Commence the sequence by taking from your own side, which is pretty obviously the practice of taking on others' suffering and giving them our happiness. Usually, this practice is known as giving and taking, but actually we start with taking on the suffering, not giving happiness. So perhaps it should really be known as taking and giving. Mount these two on the breath instructs us in the practice of breathing in suffering and breathing out our good fortune once we have become familiar with giving and taking. Up to now, we've been talking about what to do during a meditation session on bodhicitta. In the next two lines, Geshe Chakawa tells us how to act when we get up from the meditation and go about our usual business. This is indicated by the words, subsequent attainment, when he says, the three objects, three poisons, and three root virtues are the brief instruction for subsequent attainment. Do you remember the friend-enemy-stranger meditation we did before the six cause and one effect meditation and exchanging self for others? Well, Geshe Chakawa's three objects are friend, enemy, and stranger. And he's saying to us that in our daily lives we have to equalize these three in our minds. In other words, in our dealings with people we must try to give up seeing some as friends, others as enemies, and the rest as strangers. Instead, we have to see all beings with equal warm-heartedness. The meditation on all beings being our mother should be very helpful here. The three poisons he talks of are, of course, attachment, aversion, and ignorance, and we have to change them to the three virtues, non-attachment, non-aversion, and non-ignorance. I'm sorry if the expression is a bit clumsy, but that's how the three virtues have been translated from Tibetan which often defines things by sticking the suffix me, which means not or non, onto the ends of their opposites. So we get non-attachment, non-aversion, and non-ignorance. Here, non-attachment refers to a mental factor that acts to so overcome attachment that we become detached from the pleasures of cyclic existence and no longer grasp at them. It doesn't mean that you give up coffee and chocolate ice cream, but that you can enjoy them when they are there, but it makes no difference if you never saw them again. Non-aversion is an absence of the intention to harm and overcomes hatred for the things and creatures in cyclic existence that we normally find repulsive or harmful. So, you've got to love your cockroaches. Non-ignorance is a mental factor that overcomes ignorance through study, meditation, or even some innate ability. It is usually associated with powerful intelligence. So obviously, the blonde in all those blonde jokes will have some trouble with this one. In the last two lines of this particular subsection, the text says, To remember this, train in every activity by words. This means that we would do well to read up on those things and remember quotes from sutras or commentaries to help us to stay mindful of all the practices. 
That now covers the instructions on the main practice of conventional bodhicitta. And then the text goes on to talk about ultimate bodhicitta, which, as I said before, is the mind motivated by conventional bodhicitta that realizes the nature of reality. This section reads, Show the secret to those who have gained stability. Think of all phenomena as like dreams. Analyze the unborn nature of awareness. Even the opponent oneself is free of existing from its own side. Place the essential path on the basis of all. In the breaks, consider all phenomena as illusory. Show the secret to those who have gained stability. The secret here refers to emptiness, the lack of independent inherent existence of all phenomena. This is the nature of reality, how all things we exist. We will talk about this in a later program, but here Geshe Chikawa is saying that only those people who are ready to listen to such teachings should be taught about emptiness. In the West, it is now common in school physics classes to touch on how our minds trick us into thinking things exist from their own side, though they don't. I once heard of a physics teacher who made his students try to work out exactly at what point an apple that was being steadily eaten stopped being an apple. And, of course, if we pay any attention to quantum theory, we can understand Albert Einstein's quote, Reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. But if when we hear the teachings on ultimate reality and start thinking things don't exist at all, then we get into a lot of trouble. That is what Geshe Chikawa is warning about here. Just because you can't say when an eaten apple stops being an apple doesn't mean that the apple doesn't exist at all. The second line, think of all phenomena as like dreams, is like Albert Einstein's reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. We think everything, including ourselves, exists as independent entities having their own characteristics and so on. But that's not how they really exist. They're changing moment by moment, and their existence depends completely on other things, so that they're not solid fixed objects at all. In fact, their real existence is dreamlike and insubstantial, although we don't see it like that. Geshe Chikawa then goes on to say, Analyze the unborn nature of awareness. If you sit in meditation concentrating on the breath and the thoughts stop for a while, you can get a sense of spacious awareness. This gives us some rough idea about the ultimate consciousness or subtle mind which is described as clear and knowing. But even this consciousness doesn't have its own inherent independent existence. It too is empty of such existence. This emptiness is unborn because it has no causes. It is the ultimate nature of everything and is permanent. But don't think of it as something with its own inherent existence. Even the emptiness is itself empty. So it shouldn't be thought of as something ultimately existing from its own side, not depending on anything else. When we describe emptiness, it is in terms of a non-affirming negative. That means when you deny the inherent existence of something, it doesn't imply anything else exists in the place of the inherent existence you have negated. 
There is no inherently existing emptiness that replaces inherent existence. This may be very difficult to understand, but emptiness is very difficult to understand, and to get it even intellectually, we need lots of explanation and meditating on it. But in this instruction, we're encouraged to analyze even unto the ultimate nature of mind. Then in the next line, even the opponent oneself is free of existing from its own side. The opponent is the empty nature of self. If you think that you exist as some real independent person or being, even though everything else has no such existence, you're making a mistake. We ourselves also exist lacking any inherent independent existence. We too are a collection of causes, conditions and parts that the mind labels in a certain way. Other than this, we cannot find real existence however much we search. But again, if we think that emptiness is some kind of ultimate thing with its own independent nature, perhaps free from all laws, we're on the wrong track. Emptiness, as I said before, is itself empty, and so, as Chikawa says, even the lack of inherent existence of the self is empty of inherent existence. Place the essential path on the basis of all. The basis of all is emptiness. It is the way everything exists, the foundation of all existence. When we talk about the Buddha Dharma, we're talking about the path that leads first to the elimination of afflictive emotions and karma, and second, the elimination of the subtle traces in our minds left by those afflictive emotions and karma. Understanding the nature of reality, emptiness, is necessary for both of these. So Chikawa says, base your understanding of the path on the knowledge of emptiness, the basis of all. Then the last line of the verse says, in the breaks, consider all phenomena as illusory. If things are empty, they are like the constructions of a magician. When a magician saws a woman in half on stage, we gasp because we are taken in by the illusion. But the magician is not. He knows it's a trick and how it works. Of course, the ma magician might see it as a woman being sawn in half, but he doesn't believe it for an instant. In the same way, Geshe Chikawa tells us all phenomena in our experience are like such illusions so we shouldn't be taken in by them. If we do believe they exist somehow from their own side, and we exist from our own side, we develop liking and disliking, and the karma that propels us through cyclic existence. If we see them as illusion-like, we don't react to them with the, with the same emotional investments, and so do not create karma or the whole catastrophe that is cyclic existence. We have to stop here as time is up. We will continue with the rest of the mind training text next time, if I am still alive, and I hope you will join us again then. Please dedicate any positive potential we have accumulated from the program today to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.